Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 143rd episode <coughs> of the Atlas Society Asks. My name is Jennifer Anju Grossman. My friends call me JAG. I'm the CEO of the Atlas Society. We are the leading nonprofit organization introducing young people to the ideas of Ayn Rand in fun, creative ways like our animated videos and graphic novels. Today, we are joined by Mark Morano. Uh, before I even begin to introduce our guest, I wanna remind all of you who are watching us on Zoom, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, go ahead and type your questions into the comment section. I have a feeling we're gonna get a lot of questions, so go ahead and get started uh, to get to the top of the queue. I think we'll try to get to as many of them as we can. So my guest today, Mark Morano, is a journalist and a publisher of the award-winning ClimateDepot.com, a global warming and eco-news center. He's the author of many articles and books related to the subject, including The Politically Incorrect Guide to Climate Change and Green Fraud, Why the Green New Deal is Even Worse Than You Think. Uh, his latest book is The Great Reset, Global Elites and the Permanent Lockdown. Uh, I have chosen this outfit as a kind of, you know, uh, uh, Klaus Schwab sort of <laughs> homage, uh, as well as a Jolly Green Giant. So um, I'm doing my part. Mark, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Jag. I'm happy to be here today. <laughs> Appreciate it. So. Our audience is always interested and curious about the origin stories of our guests. So I'd love to learn a little bit about where you grew up and any early influences that inspired your interest in the environment and your, uh, shall we say, willingness to challenge sacred cows. Well, thank you. I guess I was always sort of uh, politically aware, even in the 1970s, a little bit, my brothers had volunteered. Uh, Actually, Richard Nixon, as, it, as they were they were older than me, so Richard Nixon, Gerald Ford. My first real foray into politics was 1980 with Ronald Reagan. When I was 12 years old, I actually, well, my older brother volunteered at the Reagan headquarters in Arlington, and I got my first taste of politics in the media because I went and volunteered at age 12, and they literally put me in charge of two things. Well, I shouldn't say in charge. I got to do two things. Uh, one of them was the handwriting machine signature of Ronald Reagan. I got to play around with that, and that was fun. It was an old mechanical thing that would sign his name to documents. This is when he was Governor Reagan. And the other thing, and this was probably the most formative, was I was the media, I was giving, they were tape cartridges. I don't know if they were eight track, but they were some kind of cartridge because it wasn't reel to reel. I'd have to look back at 1980. Maybe one of your viewers knows, but I would call up radio stations around the country and they had a list and I'd say, Governor Reagan said this today about the economy or about Jimmy Carter or inflation and interest rates or the recession. Can I give you his you know, 40 second soundbite? And I'd call radio producers, they'd say, sure. Then I'd click it over and play it through the phone line and they'd get the latest thing. So that was my first taste of real politics. And it was it was a hoop. But I always followed it from that perspective. Now, interestingly enough, throughout the Reagan years, I always said I'm a Republican, except when it comes to environmental issues. I particularly thought that James Watt as interior secretary, I was worried because I kept hearing from environmentalists that they were putting in logging roads um, and they were you know clearing out trees. And I just thought he was like not good for the earth. Well, 
later on, I got into like some of the National Geographic, the Amazon rainforest, all the rainforest disappearing, species extinctions. And I wasn't really an activist per se, but I love the outdoors. One of my jobs I always thought of was being like some kind of a park ranger out in the you know, Pacific Northwest. So I like forests. I like hiking and trails, fishing. So what happened was it was it wasn't until the Rio Earth Summit with the United Nations, 1992, then George H.W. Bush. And by the way, politically, uh, you know, I was very young when Reagan was elected. But by the time George I did, I think my first time I could vote was 1988. And I did not vote for George H.W. Bush against uh, I was going to say Dukakis. It was against Dukakis. No, it was against um uh, yeah, it was against Dukakis. I think it was Dukakis. Was Dukakis. Yeah, Mondale was, was 84. Know, I'm Willie, sorry. Willie Horton and all of yeah, that. Yes, I don't know why I'm getting confused. Yeah, Mondale was 84. So I voted for the Libertarian in 88 and 92. And then I voted for, uh, I believe, Howard Phillips Taxpayer Party at one point. Uh, I always did protest votes. Uh, very rarely did I ever vote for the Republican nominee. Actually, I did vote for Donald Trump, but as a, as a big fu to the political establishment. And I really do think Donald Trump was an accident of history. Love him or hate him, disagree. He had a lot of horrible advisors, but just in terms of him being that form. So that's my political. But what happened in 1992, I was listening to Dixie Lee Ray, who was a, uh, a physicist who was going, she went down to the Rio Earth Summit. And she started talking about how this, the whole Earth the rainforest issue was overblown, being used by environmentalists being used as a form of control, the species extinction. And that got me interested in following the sustainable development movement, the Rio Earth Treaty from 1992. And George H.W. Bush signed that. And that's really when I started looking into this. And I felt sort of I was betrayed by the environmental left, if you will. I was always considering myself free market, but betrayed by the environmental left. And I started investigating. I ended up culminating in a big documentary I did and filmed it in the late 90s. It broadcast in 2000 about Amazon rainforest clear-cutting the mist. For every acre of rainforest cut, 50 are being regenerated. The New York Times has, has even admitted that. People are moving from the jungle and swamps and wetlands. Those aren't the right phrase. You're supposed to say the rainforest to the urban areas. So the, the rainforest issue really opened my eyes. By the time climate came along, I was skeptical. But one of my big influences in terms of economics was Milton Friedman, uh, and a little bit less, but Ayn Rand as well. But Milton Friedman's Free to Choose was probably my eye-opening book. I remember in uh, George Mason University, I actually got to have Walter Williams as a professor in, e in Econ 101. Of course, I got a only got a C in his class, uh, but I actually started along, you know, I was able to then interview him for George Mason television. And we had a long time, interviewed him for my Amazon documentary. He's quoted me in his column. So it was sad when we lost him a few years ago. Uh, but that's basically how I got. So I come at this as an investigative journalist, not a scientist. That's my background. I was a government politics communication major. And I worked on political campaigns. I worked for Rush Limbaugh and then in the United States Senate as well as a uh, senior staffer and communication director. Uh, well, more than you wanted to know. <laughs> no, I was just when you mentioned Ayn Rand, I, I thought of, of what I think was one of her best summations of uh, the ecological movement, as she called it, as a, a war on the remnants of capitalism that that remain within the mixed economy. And I, that was brought back to me in, uh, certainly in reading the politically incorrect guide to climate change, how much anti-capitalism um, has been part of the movement. But also in reading the book, I uh, you know realized I had kind of forgotten the whole about the whole climate 
gate scandal um and uh the emails of climate scientists that some say exposed attempts by the top echelon of the global client climate science community to discredit skeptics. Um, so this is was nearly 15 years ago. So perhaps you could refresh our memories sure. of what transpired. Well, first I was gonna say that in 1961, Dwight David Eisenhower, and I never actually, even uh, growing up, I always looked at Eisenhower's 1950s presidency as a lost opportunity. We had a president post-war, a Republican, who could have actually gone in and set an establishment of post-war liberty. Instead, he set the entire Cold War narrative. He built the welfare state. He built the whole socialist, you know, basically infrastructure for the U.S., which then sort of led to a backlash with uh, Barry Goldwater's 1964 campaign. But I always thought of Dwight Eisenhower had done that. So the reason I bring up Eisenhower is one thing he did that was incredible was his 1961 farewell address, warning of the military-industrial complex. In warning about government funding of science, where he said, you're no longer going to have the tinkering independent scientists. You're going to have scientists who, for a government grant, will basically toe the line of what the government wants, which brings us to your question on climate gate. What had happened over the years, and it really was a free-for-all still, at least in the climate science movement, and I detail this in depth in my book, uh, both politically incorrect and green fraud, I guess politically incorrect more than green fraud, but through the 1970s, it wasn't really till they started these big scientific conferences, worldwide conferences. And then you had a lot of more and more and more centralized funding of these scientists. So that by the 1980s, science was that whole transformation that Eisenhower had warned us about was on this sort of follow the money, follow the peer review publication, don't rock the boat, keep your tenure. Science went from rewarding independent, well, to the extent that it could. There's always incidents in history where yeah, everyone's on the group thing, but essentially in climate world where I studied, and I can't speak for all branches of the science, but it was a more independent. In the 1970s, you actually had, I think it was 1977 or 78, New York Times having an article about the battle between the global cooling scientists and the global warming scientists. The scientists were warning of the coming ice age, believed that our aerosols were from fossil fuels were blocking out the sun, creating global dimming, which was going to cool the earth, was going to bring, and this was a huge movement. They've since tried to whitewash it, but we had the CIA reports and we had academics writing letters to Nixon. You had many peer-reviewed studies. You had warnings in pop culture and scientists warning that floods, hurricanes, droughts, war were more likely because of man-made global cooling. I like to joke that before global uh, fossil fuels caused global warming, fossil fuels caused global cooling in the 70s. But New York Times actually had a debate of all these different theories, whether it was the aerosols blocking it, where it's going to cool us, or was CO2 going to be uh, running us over. Well, by the 1980s, a uh, guy named James Hansen took over at NASA with climate science. And then the UN panel was formed in 1988. And that was the end. Once the UN panel was formed, they put the cart before the horse. They said, we're going to investigate whether CO2 is driving a crisis. And as a bonus, if it is, we get to come up with a solution. So what the United Nations did is they had no incentive uh, either politically, financially, organizationally, to ever say that CO2 was anything but essentially a grave problem facing the world. And the bonus was that the United Nations got to come up with the solution 
Earth treaties, which then the Rio Earth Summit, which then led to all the United Nations treaties. Well, given that backdrop, what had happened from 1988 when the UN did this to 2000 and uh, late 2009, what you're referring to, the climate gate into 2010, the release of all these emails, they literally were exposed. What had happened was, and we had been warned about this from Eisenhower, from Ayn Rand, the idea was scientists were creating a narrative that was being led by politics. In other words, the politicians declared, this is what we need to do. The, if we can have a climate crisis, all of these solutions that we want are what we've been trying to do in the progressive movement for decades, particularly since Paul Ehrlich's overpopulation bomb. So the climate gate emails literally exposed the top echelon, the leadership of the scientists at the United Nations colluding together to suppress scientific dissent, scientific papers. They were threatening journal editors. If you dare publish this paper that goes against our narrative, we'll never send our papers to you again. And these, these are threats that had teeth. They were fighting Freedom of Information Act requests. Uh, and these are people, uh, particularly like uh, Michael Mann here in the United States, Penn State. He's the media's number one go-to scientist. He was on email chains where they were talking about hiding and deleting emails so that people couldn't see what was happening. We had former UN scientists come out and admit that they would go to these meetings and they'd literally sit around and they would be on the, This was John Christie that told us about this after he left the UN as a, as a climate scientist. He said, they sat around and said, how do we make the next report alarming so that people will get the attention of people? And then you had the United Nations climate chief, Regenda Pachari at the time, say, we're gonna make the next report so alarming, the world will have to act. So this was politics, forcing science and what ClimateGate did is it peered, peeled back the uh, sort of the blanket, the, the uh, curtain like a Wizard of Oz and you could see behind it. And all it was was essentially a campaign cause uh, uh, wrapped up in the patina of science. This was not science. This was not based on peer review or data. It was based on cherry picking and political pressure and anything that didn't fit the political narrative they were pushing would be discarded. And ClimateGate was a huge deal because we had many scientists, including people like Judith Curry uh, and others come over to the skeptical side because they were just shocked. And that's when I did my big 400 dissenting scientists report in the United, in the United States Senate. And that had a huge impact, even on people like Fox News, Bill O'Reilly, who was always talking about climate and this, it just, it quelled all of these people who just believed in this, that the UN was the, the sole voice. And the UN's still at it, by the way, they, they recovered. It took many years of stumbling, but they just announced last fall, the UN communication director, that the United Nations owns the science and they've teamed up with Google to ensure that when people search climate data, climate information, Google and the United Nations literally suppress any returns that don't, that disagree with the United Nations. So mm. it's still alive and well, ClimateGate, but it really was good to see the, uh, you know, to have all the I's dotted and T's crossed of what that scandal really was about. Well, it seems very reminiscent of what we've seen in the past couple of years between the Twitter files and yes. the Freedom of Information Act, um, showing that you had government officials saying, suppress this view, suppress that view, uh, working hand in hand with the media and with social media um, and just colluding to try and, you know, do a devastating takedown of the Great Barrington scientists. Do you see parallels? I absolutely do. In fact, the, the whole, I just gave a whole speech 
and I have a whole report on the, the similarities between COVID and climate. And there's a 1985 book, and, and I believe I don't butcher the title, it's everything I learned, everything I needed to know I learned in kindergarten. Well, everything I needed to know about COVID, I had already learned in the climate debate. And it was an amazing parallel there because you had, they both relied on the same premise. The, the central premise was this, a some kind of modeler, meaning climate modeler or virus modeler, has to come up with a catastrophic scenario of death and destruction in both climate and COVID. And then the solution has to be, unless we do X, Y, Z. In the case of climate, it was, we need international treaties, we need global governance, we need a, a complete frontal assault on uh, capitalism and free markets. We need essentially to go full Marxist. And if you listen to what the United Nations chief says, what these activists with the UN, I mean, they are not even hiding it. The, the current uh, the current president, or maybe the previous one, was the head, former head of Socialist International of the United Nations. So there's nothing hidden about that agenda. And there's nothing conspiratorial about it. But essentially, with COVID and climate, so you had the, the scary climate model. In the case of COVID, it was Neil Ferguson. In the case of climate, uh, it was a whole host of different, different climate modelers that the United Nations picked, uh, and they just showed all these scary scenarios. And the way models work in both viruses and climate, they're incredibly brilliant misdirection. And I'll give you an example. Polar bears are disappearing, but they're only disappearing from Al Gore's books and movies. His first film made it the poster child. That was the number one thing. Polar bears, oh my gosh, they're going to be wiped out. They're going to be gone. The polar ice caps are going to be gone within 10 years, seven years. All these different... Fast forward, there's never counted as many polar bears. The U.S. Geological Survey says polar bears are at or near historic population highs, largely from hunting bans in the 1970s that I guess, you know, they had a lot of trophy hunters that would go up and they banned that. And now you can only have, I guess, certain indigenous people are allowed to kill them. But... The numbers went up so much. And it also turns out, no matter what happens in the Arctic, polar bears have survived times of no ice and much warmer temperatures. And even the models are predicting. So polar bears are the species. So what did Al Gore do? His sequel came out in 2017. Never mention it. Just gone. So here's what's so key about COVID climate, though. When current reality fails to alarm, they make scarier and scarier predictions. So they could say now, well, the polar bear, it's worse than we thought. You're like, how? They're actually thriving. There's more than they ever counted. They've survived much warmer than you're even predicting. And the answer is, well, our predict predictions of 100 years are much worse than they were uh, uh, you know, five years ago. So it's a misdirection. And we saw that time and time again in the COVID debate. They would project, uh, you know, using climate mo you know, viral models of how many people would die unless we masked up. A Trump CDC director, Redfield, said, if everyone masks up, you know, we could say blah, blah, blah. And the case count It was all just absolute crap and nonsense. So and I go through and I have a lot of fun with this in, in climate debate. Greta Thunberg begged kids to skip school in the covid debate kids actually did skip school uh, and it went on for a long time. In the climate debate, we had at the United Nations summits, activists calling, and I interviewed him, a guy named Kevin Anderson and, and, and several others who were calling for planned recessions to fight global warming. And there's a whole degrowth movement. Well, in the COVID world, what was a lockdown uh, except a government forced recession? And what's chilling about this, and during my research, I discovered this, in two, November 2019, the United Nations said, in order to meet the, the Paris climate goals, the world has to, 2019, November, the world has to, uh, drop, emissions have to drop 7% over the next year. 
Fast forward a year later, December of 2020, and guess what global emissions dropped? 7%. And it was due to the lockdowns, which was essentially their long planned form of a, of a uh, planned recession to fight climate change slash a virus. And they also in 2013, a man named Ibu Dabor, a UN official, actually said the only way we're going to ever meet these UN Paris climate goals or UN treaty goals was if we shut down the global economy. So you start seeing, my eyes were like, oh my, they were, my eyes were shocked, not because they, they were doing this, but because it's all out in the open. And that's why I laugh when you have, uh, you know, like the UK Channel 4 reporter, uh, these are a conspiracy or BBC. These people believe climate lockdowns are a conspiracy. No, a Bill Gates, George Soros funded professor in Europe actually coined the phrase climate lockdown and said, once COVID lockdowns are finished, we may have to resort to another lockdown, this time a climate lockdown. Verbatim, her words, this is a Mariana Mazzucato uh, from Europe. I mean, this is incredible. So there's a whole, there's a, just a whole host of parallels. In fact, John Kerry uh, actually said the parallels between COVID and climate are screaming at us. And you mentioned the Barrington Declaration. I can go through it and show you uh, in 2009, a polar bear expert who was sounding the alarm saying their polar bears numbers are increasing. There is no crisis. He was uninvited from a scientific conference for reporting that data. Fast forward, scientists with the Barrington Declaration, Nobel Prize winning scientists were uninvited to virus, viral conferences, epidemiological conferences, because of their views on political lockdowns, not because their data was wrong, but because they didn't go along with the public health bureaucracy. And the other thing, and this is important, in order to get the illusion in the climate debate of all scientists agreeing, 97% of scientists, these wacky studies that weren't even, some of the studies weren't even 97 scientists, they were based on 77 anonymous scientists, but Al Gore actually upped it to 99%. The way they get that, and to give you an example, the Biden administration has an EPA science advisory board. They literally cleaned out 50 plus scientists who they knew were going to disagree with Biden's climate uh, and environmental agenda. They just fired them. This was last year. So now the Biden administration can credibly say going forward, we propose this on climate. And by the way, we have unanimous consent of all our EPA science advisors and the public will be like, wow, it can't be that radical. Every single scientist on their board agrees. Well, that's because they got rid of 50 of them. And that's exactly what ended up happening in the COVID debate, except of course with Barrington Declaration, anyone who dissented, they deplatformed, canceled, defunded. So that was the chilling aspect, the censorship angle, the idea of misinformation. You can't allow the public to hear this. Uh, I go back to a quote from John F. Kennedy, 1963, when um, Voice of America was being launched. He had an incredible line that actually said, a nation that doesn't allow its people to judge the, the, the merit of an argument and, and consider all sides, and we don't trust them to not be misinformed, is a nation that no longer you know, is, is going to be free. And that's essentially what's happened both with COVID and climate. They're afraid that if we hear any dissent, that we will be off the page and then therefore their political goals will not be able to be achieved. Yeah, about the lockdowns. I mean, it's it's really frightening to consider that this is um, possibly a stealth way for them to try and uh, to kind of get to their climate goals and emission goals. Um, but given the... Uh, carnage, especially internationally from the lockdowns with at least 140 million 
people yeah. added to the ranks of those on the edge of starvation, the hundreds of thousands of children who died due to malaria, um, tuberculosis, other diseases, the 10 million young girls uh, forced into child marriages. How is it possible that those pushing lockdowns could not have, could have been so blind to what should have been very obvious consequences of such policies? Well, here's the thing, they weren't blind. I mean, if you go back, never in epidemiological history was it recommended to do mask mandates, lockdowns. I mean, there, were, there was talk of it, but it wasn't in our playbooks. Now, they did do pandemic planning sessions for future pandemics. Rockefeller Institute did one in 2010, and then 2019, you had, in 18, you had uh, Johns Hopkins, Gates-funded World Economic Forum. And in these, these were just sort of speculative sessions, but they called for, you know, global internet to be shut down to stop misinformation, global lockdowns, mask mandates. And here's the thing. It's not about the virus. They don't care about the chaos. You can't look at it and say, oh, this must be a disaster. They wouldn't want to do this again. No, 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 no. Bill Gates, the number two funder of the World Health Organization, has said publicly at least half a dozen times that if you want to know how to handle the next pandemic, do what Australia did. And this is what he's saying today, after we know all this. What did Australia do? They had probably the most militaristic authoritarian COVID response next to China itself, with a close second being New Zealand and a close tied for second to Australia being Canada as well. But Australia had it where you know military would come on the beach, remove people if you were outside in the beautiful sun getting vitamin D or exercising or swimming. If you had track and trace apps, you went to a grocery store and you got home that night, four hours later, you could get an alert saying you were near someone who later tested positive and government agents are coming to force you into a 12 day quarantine camp. We had horror stories and documents of all of this. This is where they wanna go in the future. So the key here is what Vladimir Lenin said. And, and, and during czarist Russia, during the Bolshevik revolution, his slogan was the worse, the better, worse is better. This fits the progressive, uh, I hate to say progressive because it's, it is progressive in a way, it's mostly progressive in terms of behind it, in, in terms of the ideology, but it also encompasses mainline Republicans, mainline Democrats, it en encompasses our ruling class. The idea of this chaos is music to their ears because ultimately when economic systems collapse, a reset is collapsing you know, all the current ways because it was all unsustainable. It brings in, they can come in with their solutions. More people unemployed, more small businesses go down. Great. That means we can then do more universal basic income, which is now being accepted by even many in the Republican Party. And the it's incredible scenario. This is what, so this is how it fits their plan. And their plan is very simple. They're currently collapsing. Free speech, big tech censorship is government censorship. And these are companies that are in collusion with the government. Uh, whether it's Facebook and previously Twitter, I'm still a little unsure about what what Elon Musk. He's a complicated figure. I'm not like rah rah Elon Musk, but he's useful at Twitter. But all these big tech, we saw firsthand them issuing uh, by demonstration, delete these people off. Boom. Yes, we did it. Who do you have next? Boom. Right, we're working on that. Unbelievable. We have have the documents. So big tech censorship is a First Amendment violation. They're collapsing our free speech, they're collapsing our energy uh, and making it rationing energy. They're collapsing our transportation by banning gas powered cars uh, and they're creating car shortages. We're looking at a situation now, Jag, where we're looking at similar to Cuba where you're gonna have 
cars frozen in time. Everyone's going to be fighting for the used gas powered cars. Well, then you leap from Cuba to East Germany, where we're going to be on waiting lists for these electric cars that are apparently going to be mandated and very similar to the old crappy East German Trabant, which I just talked to a former East German. He said they used to be on some people were on waiting lists for up to 12 years to get these crappy cars because it was the only car the government um, you know, allowed you to own. It was a government supported car. So they're collapsing our food supply right now. High yield agriculture, the whole Norman Borlaug, uh, golden rice uh, and high yield agriculture uh, revolution that we experienced in the 1960s and 70s where we could feed the world. They're now saying because of net zero goals, they're collapsing high yield agriculture. They're going after the Netherlands and Canada's following suit. Australia, it's coming to the United States. They're intentionally creating food shortages so that they can then, and Bill Gates, America's single largest farmland owner, and by the way, he's competing for that goal with China. China was on the pace to get it. Bill Gates beat it. So yay, I, I think I'd rather have China own American farmland than Bill Gates because Bill Gates' stated goal, and he's going to have big sway in agricultural policy, is he wants people to be mandated, not a choice, mandated to eat his lab-grown uh, beef that's grown in a steel vat that gets stem cells from cows, lambs, fetal blood, put into like a, this vat grown, and then you add additives, and then literally uh, they, they print it up on a 3D printer. And also there's a huge movement to make people eat insects as an alternative source of protein. Well, if you start creating meat shortages, which is the Netherlands, the number two, at least the number one exporter of meat in Europe, and that's where they're shutting down, where do you go first? They're going after all the small family-run farms in favor of the big corporate farms that have that government corporate collusion. And so collapsing energy, speech, transportation, food, uh, and even our money supply. And I go into the book, Great Reset, talk about the central bank, digital currency, where literally the Bank of England is, tells you openly, we are going to allow uh, with central bank digital currency, you'll only be able to spend money on what is, quote, sensible as deemed by the government. So if you want to buy meat, gas for your car, energy bills, I don't know, tobacco, whatever it is, if that's not considered sensible, you're not going to be able to spend that. So that is why I think the lockdowns, it's never let a crisis go to waste. They want this. This is why they like the collapse of energy uh, supply as well. And when I was in the U.S. Senate, whenever they talked about raising energy costs through more regulations, cap and trade, carbon taxes, the people like Bernie Sanders would drool over it. They go, that's great, because then we're going to set up a federal program for federal assistance for low-income people to pay the, for the energy bills that we're raising to save the planet. And what does that mean? It means they're getting all these new voters more and more dependent on government. All right, my answers are a little too long here, so I'll try to shorten <laughs> All right, up. well, uh, we've got some questions from <laughs> the audience yeah. stacking up, so I'm going to dip into some of those. Okay. Um, one from John Alexopoulos on Facebook, uh, and I think you kind of alluded to it in your previous answer. He's asking, do you think the governmental pressure to drive out farmers in the Netherlands will happen in the US? So maybe you can uh, give some background about what happened there and yes. any signs that there are efforts uh, to bring it here. Well, it's a whole trend. Now, here's the thing. If you'd asked me five years ago, I would be, I would be like, who cares if Bill Gates is buying up land? It's, you know, it's a private company. I, all the agribusiness taking over, bigger business. What's happening? And this, this is, you know, it's an interesting thing because it's, it's a corporate government collusion 
using climate goals that literally the regulations are crushing the small farmers. And why do they want to get, think back to lockdowns. Who did it crush the most? Small mom and pop independent businesses were crushed. Meanwhile, the big chains, the retail chains survived. Big tech had record profit and we created more billionaires than ever. It's the largest transfer of wealth from poor and middle class to the wealthy. Now, I sound like Bernie Sanders saying it, but this was intentional government policy. I'm not criticizing the free market when I say that. I'm saying this was the intent because when they do that, they crush people and then they're more easy to manage. And that's what they're saying. The same thing, you crush the supply of all the food, of energy, of transportation, and then they're more easy to manage. You can force people on a city bus when you take away their transportation. And what happens when you force on that city bus or mass transit? You better mask up. You better get the government mandated vaccine because that's the only way you can ride. You know, you're sub, yeah, how do we even tolerate these people is what uh, Justin Trudeau said. So in terms of agriculture, that was a that's the first test case is Netherlands. And they're having a huge rally coming up in about 10 days. And the mayor of the, of the Hague actually said that he's going to follow basically the blueprint of Justin Trudeau. He's going to bring in military equipment to stop the tractors and farmers from protesting if he thinks it goes too far. And the goal of this is up to 11,000 farms in the Netherlands small independent family run for generations could be shut down to meet these net zero goals. Well, who's going to replace those farms? They're either going to be replaced by strip malls or big corporate agriculture that's going to go along with an environment, social governance, ESG agenda, the net zero agenda, or it's going to be done by you know big billionaires like Bill Gates will be buying up land. NBC News actually had something funny when they reported. It's funny because it was just so absurd. Bill Gates buying up all this farmland. They actually said he's the he's not the one in overalls. He's not the one on a tractor. He's the landlord here for all these farmers who once owned this land. And that, and the problem I'm having is this is a government enforced consolidation, a monopoly. Uh, and as I think it was Vivek Ramaswamy, who's running for president, said it best. We've always been as conservatives, libertarians, worried about big government, government taking over, but we never checked the back door or we weren't vigilant enough at the back door of corporate government collusion, because that's really what March of 2020 has brought us is, and it's unelected. This is a key point, and I know there's a long answer, but this is a key point I need to make. For decades, Tom Friedman, New York Times, UN climate chiefs, UN, uh, UN secretary generals, Justin Trudeau, uh, Apple CEO have all praised China's one party authoritarian rule as being enlightened people by getting things done, particularly on environment and climate. Justin Trudeau said he admired China's basic dictatorship. Uh, uh, Klaus Schwab, World Economic Forum, has loved the Chinese model. Well, what happened in March 2020? The once free West literally became overnight like one party rule China. The most consequential decisions of our lifetime. From whether you go to school, whether you go to work, whether you can have a backyard barbecue, whether you can uh, have a wedding or a funeral, whether you can uh, stay at home orders by government, curfews, mask mandates, later vaccine mandates, we're all done without a single vote of any legislator. I mean, I, there might have been a one or two somewhere around the world, but it, essentially parliament, city hall, town councils, Congress never voted on any. The model of their governance was to declare an emergency and then unelected bureaucrats and executive power presidents took over. And this is why people like Jane Fonda said this COVID was God's gift to the left because the once free West was now literally doing what it drooled over these leaders 
acting as one party rule China. So when you're cutting down these farms, that wasn't voted on. That was done by some politician signing on to some agreement at the UN. And then the courts are enforcing this farm shutdown because they got to meet net zero. Same thing's happening with transportation in Scotland. Same thing's happening with our energy. Car bans, for instance, in California, Governor Newsom does a executive order to, to ban the gas powered car by 2035. The California Air Resources Board immediately unelected workout implements it. I think it was everything from 15 to 20 states have trigger laws. They're now following suit. Now we have the World Bank telling automakers they're not going to finance gas powered cars. You have corporate banks, one in Australia leading the way, saying we're not going to give car loans to anyone who buys a gas powered car. And keep in mind, we never voted. There was no national referendum. There was no congressional bill. Those switchboards weren't lighted up. We didn't have town halls. All of these decisions that were the most consequential in our life, probably since World War II, were decided for us, particularly under emergency decree. All right. Um, coming at this from a little bit of a different angle, my modern Galt on Instagram asks, what do you say to people who argue that the profit motive encourages industries to pollute? Are they just ignoring uh the that industries have gotten cleaner and more efficient yeah that's a great question if you look at how any coal first of all since the first let's start with the basics since the first earth day in 1970 i think the key was public awareness and as you could say shame even all these companies a lot of them just it was never a priority they were dumping stuff in rivers they were polluting excessively they didn't even care because it was but once it became on the public's radar and and people were saying, we're not going to tolerate this anymore. And I'm not talking about national. I'm talking about mostly the local activism that sprang up. It wasn't all bad. I mean, there's a lot of it that were, you know, people just pushing massive government intervention. But the idea of making it important. So that sent a signal to the marketplace that we need to invest now. This is important to us. So these companies in, in, the, in the 50 years since Earth Day, we've radically cleaned up our air and water quality. Well, at the same time, we've had big increases in population and economic growth. The United States leads the world in that. And in fact, the, even the World Health Organization says the United States air quality is among the cleanest in the world. So the only way they can come after us is through, you know, by coming at this, you know, by climate, a trace essential gas in the atmosphere that we exhale. But I would say that it, when, when you have things like a company that, that has these that happened back in the 60s and 70s that led to this sort of technological revolution in terms of cleaning up air and water. Uh, I think it's about what they can get away with in terms of the marketplace. And it was no longer tenable that the public was not going to accept that. And of course, regulators were on hand to start trying to to regulate it. But I mean, the, the, what they were able to do far exceeded anything of the proposed regulations. I mean, technology really has improved. In fact, there was a, a, a recent report a car in 1970 versus a car uh, today, it's 99% less polluting, you know, not talking about CO2, CO2 is not a pollutant, but on every front. So if you actually care about the environment, you want free markets, you want prosperity, you want wealth creation. History has shown that the wealthiest countries have the cleanest environment. The filthiest have been places like Eastern Europe, uh, where they, you know, you can look, you don't have clean air, clean water. And the filthiest places have been with the lack of development. You know, in Africa, there's still huts made of dung, burning dung, uh, polluting rivers. They don't have running water, electricity. And this is one of the issues that the more wealth and prosperity you bring, the better the environment will be.
All right. On Twitter, Whitney Sykes has a question that I was uh, wondering about as well. And that is, Mark, what do you think the long-term environmental and health impact uh, there is going to be in East Palestine due to toxins being burned? Great question. Now, interestingly enough, the, the dose makes the poison. So when you look at something like East Palestine, what, what's incredible about that is I think there's going to be long-term effects because of the amount of A, in the water, in the soil, and then also what was released in the atmosphere. It's high concentrations. And we don't really know the exact extent because the EPA relied on science, uh, on testing done by the railroad, which has every reason to try to block that. Now, I know I sound like uh, Aaron Brockovich here for a minute, but but what happened was without, the, the Biden administration could care less. And, and I figured out why. Pete Buttigieg said just two weeks prior to this train wreck, actually it may have been about a week before, that every transportation decision has to be a climate decision in the 21st century. So sadly, this was not under the realm of climate. So the Biden administration just could care less even looking into it. But interestingly enough, the, uh, the Biden administration did not know that in 2019, there was a Scottish train wreck that literally was blamed on climate change. It was said, and Greta Thunberg promoted this, and it was in the UK Guardian. And they said, the extreme weather caused by climate change is caused this train wreck, and we're going to have more train wrecks due to climate change. Well, if East Palestine had billed this as, oh my gosh, this was a climate change train wreck, and even Greta gives us the blessing, believe me, Pete Buttigieg would have probably been there within a day or two. But Back to your question, I think it's it's a long-term problem. I feel really sad because, the first of all, the stigma for this town, property values, restaurants, um, anyone wanting to move in, I mean, the town is going to be facing a huge stigma. It all depends, uh, and I think it's way too early to tell, it depends on the levels of exposure to these chemicals long-term. The people that were there that had the high exposure initially, and they weren't evacuated, and they were told to go back, and they were told it was safe, even though clearly the local rivers and waters weren't, and that's probably seeping into drinking water, and they could drink, that's very questionable. There's just no way to answer that question long-term, um, but it's a, it's a situation where this is a company now where... You know, hopefully we can have, you know, they'll have some law. I don't want to see heavy hand of government, but I hope the, that the company has held liable in court because it sounds like they cut a lot of corners at this company. And, and this is, you know, uh, uh, this is an ongoing situation. So it's, again, I don't know the long-term health impact, but I do know that most of these health impacts are overblown in the long run in terms of trace amounts, whether it's, uh, um, pesticides on fruit, whether, you know, you're talking parts per million, parts per billion, trace amounts, but that's not really what happened in, in East Palestine, Ohio. It's, this is a situation where they were exposed to massive amounts of doses in a short time. Thoughts on the latest pandemic treaty with the World Health Organization? Is it stealth yeah. global centralization? Yeah, this, this pandemic treaty, is just so we understand this, the Biden administration is pushing it. This is now, Bill Gates has written a book on it. Bill Gates is one of the leaders of this. Again, he's the number two funder behind the United States government to the World Health Organization. And the goal of this is very simple. They wanna be able to have global instant lockdowns. Any Bill Gates funded scientist at the World Health Organization can literally come out and say there's a there's a pandemic declaration, and you could have bans on travel, bans mask mandates, vaccine mandates, orders of lockdowns, and then some sort of sanctions if countries don't go along. 
what happened to the horror of the lockdown crowd and public health authoritarianism was very simple. You had Sweden, you had Florida, maybe South Dakota, a few other countries I read about in my book that didn't follow the lockdown pattern. Now, Sweden has the lowest excess death rates. Sweden is a success story. They didn't do masks. They didn't do lockdowns. Kids stayed in school. Nightclubs stayed open. For, I mean, for the, for the most part, it was incredible. And the same with Florida, by the way. So they want to get rid of outliers. It's this whole global governance mindset of absolute conformity. Uh, Bernie Sanders was on Bill Maher saying, we need a global response, a global response to all this. And they don't like the idea of any dissent. The whole idea of the laboratories of democracy, which America was founded on, that's opposite. That's antithetical to everything that they're trying to do. They want a, a concentration of power going from the many to the few. And that's what this is all about. Biden administration is pushing this to make it more extreme than even the World Health Organization wants. And this treaty is going to be, they're having another meeting next week. It's probably not even going to happen this year, but it's kind of like the UN climate. It actually bragged that it's modeled after the UN climate treaty process that gave us the UN Paris Agreement, except the difference is this has real teeth. And why I say that? No one's effing afraid of climate change. I'm sorry. Since 1989, Gallup polling has shown concern about climate hasn't changed. It was just not getting traction. No one cares about polar bears. No one, it's all in the abstract, right? You know, oh, Florida's going to be underwater someday, or uh, oh, that hurricane was allegedly caused. It just doesn't scare you compared to you're all going to die unless you stay in your home, unless you stay six feet, unless you mask up, unless you get the government mandated, you know, shot, you're going to die. So I now believe that climate can't survive on its own without being attached to public health. We have the Harvard School of Government saying unchecked climate change leads to more global warming, uh, more viruses. And you have a study in the journal Nature, 230 medical journals, the British Medical Journal, all of them. I'm talking the entire organized establishment of the scientific community of epidemiology is now saying that unchecked climate leads to more viruses. So if you oppose the Green New Deal or the UN uh, climate treaty, you are a grandma killer. And that is ultimately uh, what they want to do. A pandemic treaty is going to be helping to enforce climate regulations, viral regulations. World Health Organization has declared the year before COVID, by the way, that in 2018, that and COVID started in 2019, but they declared that climate change was the greatest public health threat of the 21st century. So that's where we're headed. And just as a quick aside there, doctors in Canada, a whole doctor's group and a head of an emergency center in a, in a British Columbia hospital last year diagnosed the first patient, actually it was 20, 2021, the first patient is, being, is suffering from climate change. First medical diagnosis of having climate change is a patient with heat stroke. Academics in Australia are proposing adding climate change as a cause of death on death certificates, not making it up. Peer-reviewed study. I have all the documentation. It's in my book, The Great Reset. It's, it's an ongoing thing. What does adding climate change as a cause of death mean? It means death counts, death tolls. Uh, and you, it's not far-fetched to think after every hurricane or tornado, there's going to be a climate death toll, a viral death toll, a permanent state of emergency is what I warn about in the book. And I actually use a BBC historian who goes back to the Roman Republic through the Middle Ages, uh, through 1933 Germany, through the Patriot Act, and not Patriot Act, but the 9-11 Emergency Declaration, and then the Patriot Act, which led to surveillance, and then the COVID Emergency Declaration, which we're still living under, somehow magically they finally decided to lift it. 
But this is how we have one party rule of China. You can bypass democracy. This is when the greatest human rights abuses by governments happen is under these emergency decrees. And guess what? Joe Biden is now talking about issuing a national climate emergency. Center for Biological Diversity estimates it will give Joe Biden 130 executive powers additional. And we've already know the game plan, the, the uh, Energy Information Agency the uh, and multiple UK reports, academic reports, journals are talking about massive carbon footprints for people, odd even driving days in the city, cutting back on meat, making gasoline more limited. I mean, they already have a whole game plan of how they're going to use these. And again, they don't need no stinking democracy to do any of this. And a pandemic treaty is going to go whoop, put us on a much faster path if this happens. So we've talked about Joe Biden. And um, of course, all of us are aware with uh, the his support of lockdowns and his threats against um, the unvaccinated. Uh, but what are we to make of President Donald Trump's, you know, I mean, you talk about the uh, lockdowns serving the interests of the technocratic elites and Donald Trump with his largely anti-globalist appeal. Uh, he was praising Xi Jinping for lockdowns in early he was. 2020. Oh. He was endorsing and defending Absolutely. and extending the lockdowns and, and blasting non-compliant states. Donald Trump's got a huge problem. I'm very critical in my book, The Great Reset, about him. He bought into this entire narrative. Now, I don't know if any of your audience has seen this, but Jimmy Dore actually dug it up. It's from 1990. I highlighted it anyway. The, the homosexual activist gay community went after Anthony Fauci. He did the similar pattern. I guess they were trying to get uh, approval for some, uh, I think it was, AZ, I don't want to speak on, I don't want to say the wrong thing, but the treatment for AIDS back in the, in, the, in the 80s. And they had Anthony Fauci hanging an effigy and they were storming the NIH, National Institutes of Health, where he worked. They knew about this. I, I covered this a little bit as a journalist. I followed the work of Michael Fomento. I knew what Anthony Fauci was. I knew what public health bureaucrats was. I'm a vapor as uh, I, I vape and I saw what they did with the lung ailment. So by, 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 by February, March and April of 2020, I was on I was on Brent. Uh, um, I was on regulator watch in Canada, screaming that Donald Trump is making the biggest mistake. I reached out to Trump administration officials. They said, well, he'll get blamed for the deaths if he doesn't go along. It's just one week to flatten the curve. Donald Trump, you could say he was duped, but I say he should have known better. He had horrible advisors. He allowed Anthony Fauci in the White House. And this is what public health bureaucrats had been waiting for. Donald Trump actually did a tweet and I've saved. It's now been, I've archived it, criticizing Sweden for not locking down, saying it's a huge mistake and the United States is doing the right thing by locking down. We now know through Deborah Burks's book that he was intentionally duped by her and Anthony Fauci. There's a shot I include in my presentations, a picture where Anthony Fauci and Deborah Burks are gleefully smiling at each other behind Trump as he's announcing the you know, seven days to slow the spread on the, the whole con that they did to us. And then as one of his key economic advisors, Larry Kudlow, went on, I see it was CNBC in April of 2020. He said, when's the country going to open back up? This is after seven days, 14 days, 30 days. And he said, well, I, I can't answer that. Yeah, that's up to the doctors. You had the, the allegedly free market conservative Republican president, Donald Trump, his top economic advisor, Larry Kudlow, going on, new, on TV live and saying, we don't know when the country's going to open up. Ask Anthony Fauci and the other doctors. It's their country now. That was the low point 
probably in the last 50 years. I call it the, the, the greatest blunder of any single president in 50 plus years. If any of your audience can think of one greater blunder, by, I'm talking about one single blunder, not like an ongoing policy, then Donald Trump agreeing to the seven days to slow the spread, I'd like to hear it because then I'll stop saying it was the greatest blunder, but I think it was the greatest blunder. And here's the, here's the worst part. And this is why you might be shocked by this. My number one presidential candidate at the moment that I would probably support is Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Now, you might have people vomiting in your audience right now, but I'm not supporting him for all his other views, but what he's done on lockdowns, mask mandates, vaccine mandates, and the way he's gone after public health, he is the he has a phenomenal message on that. And I'm not talking about his vaccine deaths. I don't buy the problem I have with people who talk about vaccine sudden death and all that. It's the same problem I have with people who try to promote climate through extreme weather. Athletes die, unless you have hard data that you can show me. All I hear are anecdotal stories. And the same thing with um, you know, the, uh, the extreme weather. Hurricanes, floods, tornadoes, fires, droughts are either not increasing or declining on climate time scales, according to even the UN National Climate Assessment. So you can always make a scary picture by like, look at this hurricane, look at this flood, look at this tornado. And I think that's what people on the anti-vax, I hate to use that word, but the people who are promoting the, the vaccine deaths, I'm not like that intense. I didn't get the vaccine because I didn't try, I didn't get the COVID vaccine because I didn't trust anyone promoting it at the time. But to, to go back to Donald Trump, he pushed this vaccine, rushed it through the regulatory process by doing so for the emergency youth authorization stopped a lot of other viable alternative treatments. And you had the bizarre spectacle first time in our lifetime that I'm aware of. Again, someone might have something else going back 30 or 40 years or 50 years, but the idea of a doctor prescribing you a medicine and then you go to corporate Walgreens or CVS and like, no, we're not giving that out because that's not approved for that thing. Public health says no. So you couldn't even have doctors free. And of course now Australia, California, they're all trying to tell doctors you can't prescribe, you can't give out COVID misinformation, but Donald Trump rushed that vaccine through and Donald Trump claimed it saved Spanish death toll like death tolls. And uh, all of that, he's never accounted for, never said he's apologetic. So I have a huge problem. I don't, I don't think I could support him. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. or Ron DeSantis are the two mainstream candidates. I shouldn't say mainstream, but Ron DeSantis is mainstream. <laughs> but Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is a fascinating because if you just don't go by what you knew about him before. Remember, in my book, I forgive him. I interviewed Robert F. Kennedy Jr. 2014. He wanted to see all energy CEOs, climate deniers at The Hague with all the other war criminals having three square meals in a cot. And I said for his work fighting the public health authoritarians, all is forgiven. And all the way, by the way, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. now, through his Children's Health Defense Fund, warning of climate lockdowns, warning of the United Nations Sustainable Development Agenda, excuse me, warning of the climate agenda impacts. He's no longer talking about climate. He knows he can't, he can't be railing on the, uh, uh, the COVID agenda because the climate agenda, literally, as John Kerry said, the parallels are screaming at us. So I probably just yeah. lost your audience by saying- No, no, listen, I've heard uh, Robert F. Kennedy speak many, many times. He's yeah. very impressive. I do agree that this is the major issue of our times. Yeah. I've been extremely, extremely dif disappointed with so many of um, our libertarian allied organizations who uh, just, as you say, uh, fumbled and and took and still haven't kind of taken responsibility for having been wrong because I, I think that's important and um I 
think it, I agree. There's a lot of stuff I don't know a lot about <laughs> that um, Children's Health Defense Fund uh, promotes that I'm skeptical of. Yeah, I don't but, like the uh, anecdotal but, stories. I just yeah, never did. However, yeah. I would say, you know, uh, the Democratic Party could certainly use a little dose of uh, the old style yes. Kennedy, the, the John F. Kennedy, the supply side Kennedy, the, the Kennedy Cold Warrior. Yeah. Um, than uh, than our, our kind of current crop of uh, progressives. So um, we're about out of time wanting to know either just optimistic, pessimistic, what can individuals do and what might you be doing next? Okay, two, two points on that. Or one may, well, the big thing is I didn't get into enough into the Great Reset, but just real quick. Great reset, World Economic Forum, Klaus Schwab, two months after COVID lockdown, said we need a great reset of the world. John Kerry, Justin Trudeau, Joe Biden, all the European leaders all went lockstep. It morphed into Build Back Better. The idea was to collapse our current systems by using COVID lockdowns and then rebuild them in this new sort of Marxist, socialist, sustainable way that's earth friendly for the environment. And What's happened is that bypassing a democracy, crushing people. The most frightening example I have is what Justin Trudeau did in Canada. He literally declared the trucker convoy terrorists under an old Emergencies Act, which had never been invoked in Canadian history. I write about this in The Great Reset. He picks up the phone. He calls the banks, corporate banks. This is a government leader saying, these are terrorists. I want you to cut off their money supply. Now, keep in mind, he wasn't cutting off the truckers' access to you know, welfare or government services. He, Justin Trudeau made the call to these banks to cut off the bankers, the truckers' money to their own funds in the bank. So if they had money in the bank, they couldn't access it anymore because they were now a domestic terrorist. If you baked a coffee or a donut for them, you would have your funding cut off. This was chilling. And then you had his chief of police in Ottawa say, we're going to be going after uh, not only the truckers, but their spouses, children. I mean, this was something you'd see in a in a in a uh, old you know, authoritarian state of old. And so what happened was th this whole idea of the great reset, the bypassing of democracy came everywhere. And this is happening in schools and it was all ruled by experts. So you had parents who'd be like, why is my kid eight, you know, in kindergarten or first grade having to wear a mask eight hours a day? This is enough of this. He can't, he's not learning. He, his speech is impaired. And they would say, are you an epidemiologist? Are you, these we're relying on expert rule, which goes back to Woodrow Wilson. And this is with the whole idea of the administrative state. The idea is we don't need, we're the unwashed masses. We need people to take care of us. The experts with the ruling class credentials throughout history, the ruling class academia and the uh, essentially the, the wealthy of our society have literally thought of ways in order to keep the rest of us locked down or stripped of our rights. They've always been coming up with ways to take away our freedom and saying we can't have freedom. They believe if we have too much freedom, that will create inequity, racism, uh, planetary destruction, a climate emergency, so that they need to manage it for us. So the whole idea of the Great Reset is to make it so that we don't have a say in the most consequential decisions of our life. And we've already seen that's true on every aspect. We're not voting. Who's voted to be? I want to stop. I want to put a ban on meat eating. Well, you don't have to vote on that because they're already deciding they're going to make meat a rare and expensive treat. They're going after the agriculture of it. They're going after um, the whole idea of livestock, increasing regulations with methane. It's incredible how they're destroying that. I have a report on that. Anyway, to answer your question, it's the great reject. 
And I've used the example of the Berlin Wall. The Berlin Wall didn't come toppling down in 1989 because the East German government said, well, you know, the 40 years of oppression under Soviet rule, Soviet satellite state is enough. We'll free the people. It came down because the people no longer gave their consent to tyranny. Fast forward to COVID. Why did San Francisco, LA, Baltimore, all these major cities lift the vax and mask mandates really quickly late last year? Simple reasons. The lowest level of politics in America, the school board level, angry parents showing up and the Biden Justice Department declared many of them you know, domestic terrorists, just like Justin Trudeau did and tried to silence them. But you had people willing to be arrested, people screaming at these school boards. This wasn't scripted. This was raw emotion. It was also about the critical race theory and about um, transgender, transgender ideology. So they were able in the state of Virginia to topple the Democratic Party machine at Terry McAuliffe and the teachers union elect a Republican, almost toppled at New Jersey, a couple other key elections around the country during that election cycle, terrified the National Democratic Party. And I include in my book, as reported by the New York Times, that the National Democratic Party did focus groups of their own base and determined that this was not a winning issue. Because if you remember, Terry McAuliffe, when he ran in Virginia, was like, we're going to do vaccine managers, we're going to keep the mask managers, we're going to keep you alive, we're going to keep you safe. And it was like, literally, he was running on the fact that he was going to force people uh, in the most dystopian vision of, especially Virginia. He lost spectacularly, unexpected. Because of that focus group, as reported by the New York Times, the memo essentially went out and every major city from San Francisco, LA, Baltimore, Washington, New York, Philadelphia, Boston, lifted their mask and, and vax mandates overnight. So once they realize people aren't willing to tolerate the tyranny, it falls. And I can't tell you that we're gonna have a plan. I just know that when people resist, mass resistance is the way to do this. When they had things like you couldn't go to a park or a beach, I was screaming on Twitter, you can't arrest everyone. We need to organize hundreds right. of people. Of course, that's easier said than done. <laughs> well, yes, courage. Courage is what's uh, the most important thing and be a part of the solution, show up, resist. And read The Great Reset by Mark Morano. Mark, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Jag, appreciate it. Thanks also to all of you who joined us and asked such great questions. If you enjoyed this video, if you enjoy the other work that we do at the Atlas Society, please go to atlassociety.org and make a tax-deductible donation. Uh, be sure to tune in next week. I will be off because our senior scholar, Stephen Hicks, and senior fellow, Rob Krasinski, will be on uh, discussing a uh, special webinar on the philosophy of history. We'll see you then. Thank you.